Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, everything you could possibly think of has its own history, like trunks, worms and apes. Oh, love that. Or rates, plates and lates. Uh, people handing things in late. Uh, <laughs> or, or Tardiness. Another yes, tardiness. Slates, hates, and mates. Do you know we should do? We should return to that uh, episode on friendship that we did. Uh, we recorded years and years and years ago and lost it on, <laughs> on, a, on a memory stick somewhere. We, we should did. return. To, we should return to that. However, this is to digress monstrously because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew that the history of teeth? is in fact all about Viking warriors and social status in the Viking world. And we write about that in our little chapter on teeth in the unexpected history of Vikings. Or, and I'm feeling very uh, seasonal, uh, several uh, weeks early probably, uh, the history of Christmas is in fact all about killer frogs, poison pen letters, it's about bad luck, obscenity and subversion, it's about hard luck stories, it's about evil beings, magical shoe fillers, animal cruelty, violence, carrots with everything, and it's also about the British Empire. Mm, such fun, that one. Really, They're all fun, James, aren't they? They're of course all fun. they are. Of course they are. Um, actually, out of all of the things that we've listed in the last few weeks, I, I you mentioned there that we lost the... Um, we lost friends. We did lose friends. Um, can we do an episode on losing things? Oh, that would be quite good. Yeah. It? I think it would be brilliant. You'll all realise, that uh, was it last week, everyone, I tried to get James to agree to do an episode on maggots. It didn't take long, but next week we're doing maggots. <laughs> I know. And you sent me a couple of things and said, it's everywhere. And I thought, oh, is it? <laughs> I yeah. don't think I th I think that's going to be an uphill battle. <laughs> well, I'm excited about that one. Well, we'll do losing things after that, shall we? And foreheads from last week. Losing anyway. thing losing things I think is quite good. Okay. I think there's yeah, I think there's lots there. Great. Uh, Loser. Oh, but talking about losing things, uh, <laughs> did you see the Saturday Night Live sketch? Yes, I did. Which was absolutely th brilliant. Jim Carrey uh, you know, reprising his Ace Ventura uh, mm. pet detective uh, said at the end, well, you know, he was pretending to be Joe Biden. Uh, and he said, well, you know, in the it, it, sometimes there are winners and there are also losers. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, so uh, actually, yes, losing is going to be is gonna losers. Be very good. Losers. Yeah, You'll all be wondering who I'm talking to, who I'm, I'm randomly chatting to about future episodes here, everyone. Let me just say, if history was a forged signature, this one's quite complicated, right? If history was a forged signature, this man, <laughs> the forger, he would ensure that it was that of the Tudor Queen Elizabeth I, an elaborate decorative expression of joy with a flourish that speaks of the past as eloquently as the words themselves do of the present. It is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. James, if you listen back to that, you'll realise it makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> However, Elizabeth I does have beautiful handwriting. That's the only true And bit. the signature is very loopy and ornate. Thank you, Sam. And, and uh, sorry that we're sitting parted opposite town because... We're having to social distance in these grim days of lockdown. Well, let me introduce you. Let's just say that if he were an ink-related inventor, 
he'd only be Mark Isambard Brunel, inventor of the Brunel double writing machine, uh, patented circa 1800, and father of Isambard Kingdom Brunel, the famous engineer. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Thank you very much. That's wonderful because I think that Mark gets a bit of a uh, dodgy rub in the whole remembering of history thing. Everyone thinks that Isambard was the great engineer, wasn't it? It was Mark. Hands down. He was the man. Mark was the man. Mark Mark was the man. His machine was patented in the UK uh, in 1799. It's one of those machines where you have one you have one pen that you hold and it's connected to another pen. Mm. And so you can write two pages uh, at the same time. That's quite cool. Isn't it cool? Yes. Jefferson used it as well, I think. Yes, I've come across that. Um, yes. Anyway, uh, we are doing the History of Ink, part two. We've done part one. We've kind of introduced everyone to the possibilities of, the amazing possibilities of the History of Ink, uh, coming across that wonderful book on the History of Ink from the 1860s. I think uh, someone could do a great project following that through on the historiography of ink to see if anyone rants as much as the Deus Davids in, did in that one that I discussed in episode one. James described how ink was made. We talked a little bit about voting ink and um, electoral fraud, uh, making it clear that paper is not the only thing, by no means is it the only thing that ink was put upon. Um, So, James, I feel we've kind of teed up to launch into all sorts of wonderful different directions. Where would you like to go? I think we have. Well, I'd like to go into graphology, I think, Mm -hmm. and I'd like to have a look at ink blots and styles of handwriting, their differences of, of hand. And if you have a look at, at people's uh, manuscripts that survive, examples of their handwriting, they are amazingly different. Uh, different sort of looping hands, scrawl. And graphologists think that they can identify and read these differences in hands. Um, and I suppose what it is, it's it's whether you can assign particular reasons for changes in the quality of handwriting or material features such as ink blotches, ink blots and ink blotches and smudges and corrections, deletions and insertions. And this brings us into the extremely uncertain but brilliantly imaginative world of graphology, which is a supposedly scientific approach to the study of handwriting that seeks to uncover the character, the personality, the temperament of individual writers. What we might what we might term the interiority materialized in handwriting. Now, this has been used by certain people uh, in the period that I study, the 16th and 17th century, to analyse uh, the, the personalities of particular individuals. So, for example, one can look at a, a draft letter uh, sent from uh, the very unfortunate Arbella Stewart uh, to King James, uh, and you can see that there's been water damage, and certain scholars have described this as being tear stains on it so as as she i mean it's absolute nonsense uh but but anyway they they they're reading into the they're reading into the historical situation and her being unfortunate writing to the king begging for his forgiveness and to be freed from imprisonment and they're saying that basically she is 
you know, she's 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 weeping as she writes. And frankly, this has been described by the handwriting guru Tom Davis as, and this is one of my favourite favourite quotes uh, from a handwriting guru: "Outrageous and therefore amusing. It is precisely what handwriting analysis needed to be rescued from nearly a hundred years ago." So what we're dealing with here is the extent to which one can detect moods, emotions, temperaments, or even the age and sex of a writer, or the impact of different writing implements, um, deviation from stylistic norms of handwriting, is a is a, an area that is really sort of ripe for exploration. And I encourage you all to have a look at the work of Sheila Lowe, and she published a while ago a book called The Handwriting of the Famous and Infamous. And what she's done is she's taken a range of examples of handwriting of individuals across history, uh, including American presidents, including monarchs, including very famous literary, literary figures, serial killers. It's all in there. Wolfgang, Amadeus, Mozart, Beethoven, Sigmund Freud. It's all there. And she has done uh, a graphology analysis of it, but keeping uh, keeping with the theme of the last podcast episode on ink, I want to turn to the election and Donald Trump. And when Trump was being impeached, he uh, scrawled something on a pad of notepaper on Air Force One, and it said in dark, bold, capital letters written with a sharpie, I want nothing, I want nothing, I want no quid pro quo, tell Zelensky to do the right thing, this is the final word from the President of the US. And graphologists got hold of this, it went viral at the time, and the fact that he's got a piece of paper that scrawled on it, I want nothing, I want nothing, I want no quid pro quo, at the time of his impeachment hearings went absolutely ballistic. And Sheila Lowe, the author of this book that I just talked about, had a look at this uh, and was interviewed about it. And she's done an analysis of it and it got picked up all around the world. And she writes, some of the O's have little stabby strokes coming into the middle, such as in word. Um, this is a special area of communication in handwriting and should be clear. When there are such interferences, the usual interpretation is, wait for it, the sign of a liar. And she's been, this woman has been looking at Trump's handwriting from the early 90s. He's a public figure who, you know, is has always been of great interest. And one of the things that she notes is that he always uses a Sharpie marker for his writing. So he's got, he's, you know, rather than using an elegant fountain pen, for example, he's using basically a felt tip. And she writes, this suggests someone who is attracted to the trappings of luxury but wants it without having to put in a lot of effort to obtain it. And she argues again that this very large capital form of writing, she thinks that that is attributed to someone 
who has a strong need for security and to be in control and to be looked up to. And she argues that the way that the letters disconnect point to someone who is unable to assimilate the difficulties he experienced in childhood, which leaves him open to life's various adversities. He lacks good coping mechanisms and has trouble relating fully to himself and to others. And there's also the, the signature that she looks at. And she said, the spiky signature, there's a certain arrogance confirmed by his signature, which looks like a barbed wire wall with many sharp angles. The end of the signature, the final stroke on the P, turns back and slashes through the signature, which, because one's name represents the self, is self-destructive. Now, uh, read into that what you will. I mean, it's it's interesting, it's imaginative. You know, there we all have sort of preconceptions about what Donald Trump is like. Um, you know, this is not a, a an exact science uh, that we've got here. Nonetheless, uh, graphologists are used to analyse handwriting. Uh, are used by the FBI, are used to you know, study serial killers and all of those kinds of things. So it is quite, you know, it, it's it's out there. Now, in the rest of her book, um, she looks at other uh, famous uh, presidents. She's got, for example, uh, an example of John F. Kennedy's handwriting. Uh, and she she describes here that his handwriting has the dynamism of a visionary and an executive. He was undoubtedly an ideas person who could look ahead and visualise the future. The T-bars fly into the stratosphere of the upper zone. They remain connected to the stem, so he was able to stay in touch with reality. The writing has narrow letters with wide spaces in between, reflecting a basically shy person who'd learned to behave in an outgoing manner when appropriate. So that's JFK. She also analyzes Thomas Jefferson's handwriting. So his ink. Uh, Jefferson's handwriting has a strong sense of direction in one who would not give up. A prolific communicator, he covered the page with his words, suggesting a cautious approach to spending time and money. This is not to imply stinginess. The letters themselves are well-rounded and not squeezed together, as would be expected in a parsimonious person. She's also got, who else has she got here? Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's handwriting is a mixture of curves and angles. The angles give strength to the curves and the curves soften the angles. Thus, he is an emotional person who feels things deeply someone who will go to some lengths to create a consensus. Yet when he strongly believes in something, he has the capacity to stand firm in his viewpoint. The overall picture of space is compact, indicating a strong need for social contact and a genuine caring for the welfare of others. And one final one for you, George W. Bush. Bush's handwriting is fast and highly simplified in a fairly organised writing field. There is some extravagance as seen in the wide margins and extra-wide word spacing. Also, many indefinite forms lead to illegibility. While his intelligence is obvious, this is someone who takes the easy route wherever possible, rushing ahead without fully considering the outcome. 
The tall upper loops signify pride in his achievements, yet interestingly, his personal pronoun, I, is incomplete. The lower loop representing the father figure is missing, so Bush does not feel his father was there for him as he was growing up. I mean, could you, I mean, it literally is sort of, you know, psychoanalyzing this handwriting. What do you make of that, Sam? I think the, I, I, um, my initial reaction is it's absolute nonsense. However, <laughs> um, it's historically interesting because uh, graphology has its own history. I mean, it's, it's an established thing. As you say, it's out there, it's used. Um, there's a fascinating history and when, it, when people first came up with it, why they first came up with it, how it's been used, how use of it has changed, all of those things. And I think that um, the one key point here is that when you write something down, beware. <laughs> beware of all of the things it can reveal about your deep inner psyche and that ink is a, um, it's a, it's a way into your soul, apparently. Um, I, 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 think, I, 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 I love the fact that people's handwriting is completely different. I love the way that through the medium of ink, you can reveal a great deal about yourself through the words that you write and certainly through, through how you write them. I think the, the, the basic point is that, you know, I've read wonderful letters where people have been clearly stressed or in a rush that help you or are very emotional that really help you understand and evoke the, the situation in which they were writing. Um, that's slightly different from saying someone misses their dad because he's missed an eye, dot on an eye or whatever it is. But I, yes, I'm, I'd, I mean, I'm I'd fascinated hate, by it. Yes, I'd hate somebody to uh, psychoanalyse my handwriting, which is the most illegible scrawl that you could ever imagine. I once described it uh, as a as dyslexic spider on a on a sort of cocktail of vodka and LSD. Uh, it's it's <laughs> how you come not, across actually, James. It's not great. Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> bless you, bless you. <laughs> Very accurate. Um, well, yeah, but really fascinating. Eight legs. Yeah, but you know the point here is that the um that that. that that innocent-looking pot of ink on your desk is a window into your very soul. Beware. Um, I, I I want to pick up very Scary. briefly on the um, the bit you talked about about in the introduction in the first episode on um, ink, Chinese ink, in particular being uh, it's it's fundamentally different to ink made in Western countries for the simple fact that the Chinese learnt that they could make it into solid objects. Uh, and and that difference in form is really what makes it stand out. Um, and being able to make it into a paste that solidifies, you can you, you can make it into graceful shapes. You can make cakes. You can make ink sticks. Um, they they realised that the sort of the uh, monotony, I think, is the word of the the, the colour, the blackness of the colour, is actually gives them all sorts of opportunities to engrave it, to embellish it, to to put gilt on it. Um, and so Chinese ink becomes a work of art in its own right. They're actually making ink blocks with specifically not to be used. In fact, there's, some of them have characters on it saying, do not grind. You have artists, you have ink makers who become renowned artists. Um, one of the earliest references, this is in the 10th century of Li Tung Kui, who is renowned for creating um elaborately shaped and decorated ink blocks um, decorated with gilt 
dragons. I'd, I'd love to be able to see that. Now you can actually see some of some of what I'm talking about. Yes, they're exceptionally ancient. And they sound a bit made up, but they're not. You, all you need to do is go onto the Metropolitan Museum in New York and um, type type in ink cake. And you get some wonderful, wonderful examples. They suddenly got a huge collection came in the 1930s. It's one of the best in the world. And you'll notice how they are described. So those of you who can't get access to the Internet or, or don't want to, they're, um, they're a bit like placemats, a bit thicker. But the rough kind of size and shape. Some are square, some are circular. And they've all got interesting titles. You have an ink tablet with two phoenixes design. Ink tablets decorated with five pines. Ink tablet with thousand-year fungus motif. Ink tablet with the nine suns design. I give you a little sense of it. If you imagine a beautifully painted Chinese porcelain bowl, for example, same thing, but black and, and on ink. Um, and you can do the, the history of how this was done, when it was when they started to make works of art out of ink. You can look at the actual ink artists, the, the artist who made the ink themselves. Um, there is a particularly uh, fascinating story in the history of Cheng Chin Fang and Fang Yi Lu, who were, were renowned as being the greatest ink makers of, of their time, probably of all time. And they made... Um, uh, making ink in the 16th century. Um, immensely productive, both of them. Uh, they worked with each other for a long time. Then they, they quarrelled, they split up. They, they both published books about their own crafts. They stole ideas from each other. They fell out, um, uh, uh, apparently over a woman. Um, and so there's, there's a fascinating history that you can do just, just of these two people who made who made these ink cakes, and many of which are now in the uh, Metropolitan Museum's collections. Uh, and another point to make here is, is that you've got this sense of the Chinese appreciating, valuing, almost kind of worshipping ink, and that helps you go into the idea of, of, of their appreciation of the art of calligraphy and how important ink was within that art. They had um, what was known as the four precious things of the study. Um, James, can you guess what they are? What are the four precious things of the study? One of them is ink. The desk, the uh, pen. Yes. Pen is one. Uh, the knife. Uh, no. Oh. What do you write on? Paper. Paper is another. And what do you use to um, get the ink out of the ink? <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got your ink cake, and then that goes onto an ink... Ah, like a scrubber. Yeah, okay. an ink stone, as they call it. So the four ink precious stone. things of the study, the pen, paper, ink, and the ink stone. Um, and what they actually did is they, if a, it was a renowned calligrapher, the renowned calligrapher would only use ink made by a renowned ink artist. Or an, another way of doing it, looking at it, is that you're, you're, you're um, say you're, you're making a, a fancy piece of artwork, a bit of calligraphy in, say, the 1600s, um, you would specifically and only use ink made by an artist going back a century, a century and a half. So not just contemporary, they're using historical ink to make modern images. So there's a real understanding and knowledge of, of the importance of ink's own history there. So they're deliberately using old ink 
um, to be able to, to, to associate themselves with previous masters of it. So there, a little window into, um, into the wonderful history of Chinese ink, and I'd urge you to look at the Metropolitan Museum collections of ink cakes. I think they're absolutely fabulous. Oh, that's splendid, Sam. I love the idea of ink cakes, but be careful not to eat them. I imagine they're quite in, indigestible. Now, I'm going to take us in a completely different direction. Uh, and I think we started off the last episode on ink by saying that I had worked for many, many years on the history of letter writing and published a big book called The Material Letter, which is about the manuscript practices and culture of letters and letter writing uh, in the 16th and 17th century. Uh, brilliant book. You should all read it. Um, Henry Woodhausen described it as like the Bible. Every household needs one. Um, what I'm going to talk to you about is some of the sort of findings from from that book. And the book itself is about it's about how you write um, so it's all about the the sort of materials associated with writing, the process of writing. It's about the way in which uh, letters were actually penned. Uh, so whether they were written by people themselves or whether they were dictated or whether they were used from models. And then it's looking actually at the physical characteristics of letters and interpreting those. So, and, and ink comes in there. And then it's also about postal um delivery of, of letters at a time pre the post office and then about how they're read and archived. But what I want to talk about is ink in particular. Uh, and I think it's a central commodity uh, for letter writing, rather like paper, rather like pens and some of the things that Sam was talking about that were necessary for the Chinese writing desk. There are all sorts of things that are necessary for the early modern uh, British writing desk or the early modern European writing desk, um, for that matter. Uh, paper, uh, a surface, um, a, a quill, a, a pen and various other sort of material artefacts and also ink being part of it. And one of the things I want to start with is this question about thinking about where you get ink from. How do you get access to it? Who has it? What kinds of social groups are able to have it? How much does it cost? How do you get hold of it? You know, could it be purchased or could it be made within the household? To what extent was ink available outside of large metropolitan areas such as cities? Um, how, you know, basically what we're looking at when we're looking at uh, writing ability, you know, how far down the social scale does this go? Um, and I think there's a lot of evidence that ink could be purchased ready-made or it could be homemade. And if we have a look at manuscript recipe books uh, or notebooks, they frequently contain instructions for making ink. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Also, if you have a look at studies of retail trade, and you can get at this by using probate inventories, what it illustrates is that there is fairly widespread access for consumers to goods like ink because they're not only coming around via peddlers and itinerant market retailers and chapmen, 
but also they are present so things like ink is present in permanent retail shops in towns of varying sizes around the country so for example if you have a look at an early 17th century list of shops and houses as do join the church of st paul upon the north side in other words this is london beginning at the great north door it lists 19 shops including seven booksellers of varying sizes two bookbinders shops, a paper seller's shop, a scrivener, so in other words, a professional writer. And writing materials are also available outside of these metropolitan areas. So if we have a look at uh, Cornish retailers in the first half of the 17th century, we know from their probate inventories that they sold paper, parchment, sealing wax, and also Galls. In other words, the, they, they sold the raw materials, the oak galls, which are these outgrowths of oak trees produced by insects that are then used for making ink. And if we have a look at household accounts themselves, we can see the widespread purchase of ink. So if we have a look at the accounts of somebody like Edward Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham, um, it was recorded in 1523 that he paid two pence for ink at diverse times. And Thomas Lovell paid ten pence for ink. Uh, there's a lovely little account book that survives for two brothers uh, who were away at Oxford, their undergraduates from the early 17th century, and they frequently paid for ink that had been produced. And they paid roughly about two pence for this. Uh, and we can see this in all kinds of other places. Philip Gordy, uh, writing to his brother in 1601, informed him that his book and ink would be brought or sent by the carrier. Uh, and he also describes on another occasion as promising to bring him red ink. Um, we also have recipes for ink uh, that survive. So people not just purchasing it ready-made, but also you can make your own ink at home. And this was something that was taught to children as a key part of their learning to write. Whereas today you would use a pencil or you would use a probably a biro. Uh, and my 10-year-old at the moment is using a biro that you can actually rub out, which is very, very clever indeed. But the, the um, English handwriting uh, experts John de Bochesny and John Bailden's early English writing manual uh, printed in 1571 included instructions and I quote to make common ink how to make it in haste to keep it longer and how to make special black ink and they write to make common ink of wine take a quart two ounces of gum let that be a part five ounces of galls of copperas take three long standing doth make it better to be if wine ye do want rain water is best and as much stuff as above at the least if ink be too thick put vinegar in for water doth make the colour more dim i haven't rendered that in sort of in, in in verse but it's written in verse and it's supposed to be something that children would be able to understand and you can find other uh, recipes in other uh, educational manuals of the period such as Francis Clement's The Petty School in 1587 which advises letting it stand covered in the warm sun adding that the process is hastened by boiling. Um, wine and vinegar could be used to refresh the ink once it was too thick. 
Um, and so there are all sorts of recipes for ink of different colours. There's a recipe for ink uh, that to stop it freezing uh, in winter. Um, so there are all sorts of things in printed volumes, and also there's a lot in manuscript notebooks and miscellanies for this period. Um, the Elizabethan gentlewoman Elizabeth Bourne, for example, in her manuscript receipt book, um, wrote instructions for how to make ink. Um, I think this also leads us to the question of different kinds of ink and whether we can interpret different things from the quality of ink that is used um, that may be related to the occasion of writing or maybe it's it indicates somebody who is ill-practiced at making ink so therefore somebody who's less familiar with the writing arts we've talked earlier on about graphology and this is certainly something that could come in there so if you think about the way in which you hold your quill or you cut your quill or the writing surfaces that you that you use, all of these will affect the flow of ink onto the page. And ink blots on the page may suggest that you are sloppy or you're in haste, uh, or it may confirm that what we're looking at is a draft or a rough copy status of a letter. Um, and also it may indicate that somebody is just less practiced at writing things. If you contrasted, for example, something that was a presentation manuscript with something in rough, full of deletions and crossing out, then you would you can tell a lot from from the kind of um, evidence that we're that we're talking about. Now, the other thing to think about when we're looking at ink is that the degree to which it can be held by the page, so that stick to the page. Now, most paper that you would buy for writing in the early modern period was pre-prepared to take ink. And it's been treated with something called size, which is a glutinous or viscid wash that is applied to paper after it was removed from the paper mould. In other words, we're talking about rag paper that is put into uh, a wooden mould or box with chain lines across um, that's the basic way that you would produce paper. When it comes out, you treat it with this side. Other paper, however, needed to be treated with powdered gum called sandarac, uh, which is a resin derived from the sandarac or avar tree. Or, or other, in other words, it's also known as Calais sand. And it needed to be treated with this before it could actually be written upon. Um, and the the... the ink would actually dry and stick on the page. Now, too much size that you have slows the pen, and 16th century writing masters cautioned against its use. So, for example, somebody like Peter Bales advised using the best quality paper. Let not your paper be too rough nor too smooth, for being too rough it marreth your pen, and being too smooth it will be too slippery that you cannot write steadily thereon. But yet of both, the smoother is better, for thereby you may make your letter the cleaner. And there are there's evidence in household accounts of the period, such as the Raynal family of Ford in Devon, who record paying a penny in 1627 for Calais sand. And this was a very regular purchase for them alongside household purchases of paper. Um, there are also recipes for how to um, make paper that takes that takes ink 
So if we have a look at Jacob Vecker's 18 Books of Secrets of Art and Nature, uh, which was published in London in 1660, they write, Take eggshells, what quantity you will, taking away the little skin with inside, and when you have grossly stamped them, put them into a pan, such a one as will endure the heat of the fire, covering it with some colour, then set it in some glaciers or potter's furnace or in a brick tile or lime maker's kiln, leaving it there until all the shells become into a very white powder, which is called egg lime. Sift it and keep it, and when you will occupy it, cast a little quantity of it upon the paper or parchment and spread the powder well upon it, rubbing it well with a hare's foot or with a wise, then taking away that which is too much, write upon it, and you shall find it better of better effect than the vermix. When the writing is dry, if you will take away the said powder, yea, the common vernish, for fear lest men should wipe their hands, rub the paper or parchment with crumbs of white bread, for it will with it will draw to itself and take away all the vernish or powder that it has upon it. So we have then these sort of homemade efforts to treat paper so that it can be taken, so that it can take ink. Now, finally, I just want to talk about a rain, the range of objects in addition to the ink, the range of accessories that accompanied the ink and that are part of, of its use for holding, writing and blotting. And various containers during the period were used to store ink. We have records not only in household accounts of purchase, but also the material artefacts themselves in places like the Victorian Albert Museum. And these include the ink pot or desk-bound inkwell. These are very common fixed receptacles for ink, usually made from horn, lead, glass, stone, porcelain and other materials. Those Newdigate boys that I was talking about in Oxford uh, in 1618 purchased ink and a glass for three pence. Um, we also have something called a standish. A standish is like a little um, receptacle that would hold not only your ink but also would, would have areas where you could put uh, your quills. Uh, and some of these would be very, very expensive indeed. Um, if we have a look at an inventory of plate belonging to Cardinal Wolsey, he had a standish standing upon four lions with silver scissors. And in 1585, Henry Percy purchased a silver standish for 100 shillings. So there we are. There's all sorts of material associated with ink and how to interpret it. Yeah, it's 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 amazing how many different directions you can you can go in. Um, I, one thing I'm just going to very briefly talk about is I've, I've become fascinated in people working with faded ink and how you you capture that and how you actually work you work with it, how you recover um, images of ink which have been lost. And there are two particularly famous cases. One of them is known as the Archimedes Palimpsest. It's a 13th century prayer book, but it's been made using uh, erased copies of works by Archimedes. A huge number of different works, at least seven treatises by Archimedes. They've managed to, by using a clever photography manipulation of ultraviolet and infrared light, be able to find these different layers written on it. So 
This book so uh, includes works by Archimedes on, on the equilibrium of planes, spiral lines, the measurement of the circle, sphere and cylinder, on floating bodies, the method of mechanical theorems, and the stomachion. Oh, well, that's about. I'm looking forward to that. But what's fascinating is that they, they knew that quite quickly when they were looking at the Archimedes palimpsest. But since then, more recent work, they found out that it actually contains all sorts of other erased texts as well. Um, and we've got a lost speeches by an Attic um, orator called Hyperides, uh, among others. So there's a, a great deal more that can be found. It's like a sort of a, an ongoing discovery process. And another wonderful one is that they've used um, infrared imaging to restore the diary of an astronaut called Ilan Ramon. And he died in the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster in 2003. This isn't the 1986 breakup of the Challenger, which exploded soon after liftoff. This is when um, the Columbia disintegrated and fell apart when entering the Earth's atmosphere. And they found remarkably, unbelievably, he, he was he was flying back down to Earth with his diary, which he'd kept in great detail on his lap, they think. Um, a huge number of the pages they were expecting to have disintegrated. They weren't. They were found scattered in a field in Texas. Um, they were then damaged by rain, damaged by wind, insects. A lot of the ink faded, but they managed to recover um, a great deal of work there. So it's not just something that's applied to ancient history uh, like Archimedes, but also to really important 20th century stuff. Um, I'd really urge you to look at this to find out a little bit more about it. Ilan Ramon is the, um, is the astronaut there. So there we go. Crikey, James. A history of ink. A million I know. times, a million ways. And we haven't even talked about invisible ink. Uh, we've talked about this in the in the past. We've talked about this in relation to orange juice. But actually, the history of invisible ink has a fascinating history. Um, and you can see it in the medieval ancient... Well, you can see it in the ancient world, the medieval world, uh, in, in the Renaissance. The idea that people would have used different substances that then could have been treated with heat to reveal them... But also, if you think about during the Revolutionary War over in um, North America, um, the emergence of technologies there to use agents that were reagents that would basically reveal uh, the chemical invisible ink. Uh, we have the creation there of the sympathetic stain. Um, so the use of chemical ingredients there. And then there's a really interesting history of invisible ink throughout World War One. Uh, and throughout World War Two, and also into the Cold War. And what you have is effectively different sides, and experts on different sides and scientists, trying to provide more effective and sophisticated invisible inks. And as soon as one side has, has worked out, you know, one form of ink that can be read with a particular reagent, the other side then counters that with a different technique. And so actually, one of the sort of real battles of um, of sort of, you know, of technological sophistication is actually in Invisible Ink throughout that period. Wonderful stuff to get into. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode on Ink. We're going to come back with you to you with some uh, maggots and then losers, if uh, unless we don't do maggots, but definitely losers is going to be coming up soon. Um, do please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, I've got a new podcast dedicated to nothing but that. It's called the Mariner's Mirror podcast. It's great fun. And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. Sam Willis. If we have challenged ourselves with maggots, we should definitely do maggots. That's I true. Think. 
That's I think true. it's a, it's it's a challenge. I reckon uh, they're, they're to do with history itself because they eat books, don't they? They eat things. Are books people? I don't know. Surely, or am I thinking of worms or something? <laughs> I think if we had if we had a flexible definition of maggots, I'm sure we could go off in all kinds <laughs> of ways. <laughs> okay. We could talk about the maggoty past. The maggoty past. Um, we'll have a flexible definition past. of maggots. We'll bring you something interesting that I absolutely promise you. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. If you want a Christmas present, you can get us to sign and dedicate a book to anyone you want. Just get. Let's um, check it out on the website there. Uh, and I think that's just about it for now. Um, if you want to support us, please leave a review on iTunes and we have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. Any money received there goes towards um, editing costs and it allows us to produce more material and it's hugely appreciated. Uh, thanks, all guys. Back soon. Bye bye. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>